every single atom that makes you and me and everyone who is listening to this has made many things, will make many things. My personal belief is our consciousness, we get one go. And when I die on earth, that's the end of me, this personality, this thing that is talking and boring you now. I think it's much healthier just to, to talk into the mic in front of a room full of people <laughs> and have it recorded for podcasts. That's so healthy. It's free therapy. In fact, it's better than free therapy because you all paid to get in, so... <laughs> It's therapy funded by the public. Yay! My emotional well-being is like the Royal Bank of Scotland. Yeah! Fantastic. Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now and we've recorded loads and loads of tragic variety because what we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts we've got comedians storytellers musicians spoken word artists and more and they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears we're putting together some special episodes that really celebrate what we think stand-up tragedy is about and showcase some of the amazing performances that we've got over the last few years Today's episode is Selected Tragedy, Volume 11, Tragic Backgrounds. So one of the things we've done at Stand Up Tragedy over the years is try to document the process of our performers as well as their performances. And today's episode focuses on that kind of thing. It mixes together some audio from our podcasts, some audio from our live show, and also some audio from my other podcast, Getting Better Acquainted, which you can find at www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk or you can search for it on iTunes. We're going to hear a few interviews and a couple of performances focusing on the experience and the process of putting together a piece of tragedy to be performed. From a, a content note point of view, expect some very sad personal details about people's lives, discussion of bereavement, discussion of suicide and mental health. There's also Robin Ince talking about the wonders of the universe and a song about a grouse that has been embalmed. The next Stand Up Tragedy live show is on Saturday the 28th of February at the Hackney Attic. The night is called Tragic Winter. It's going to have three different acts focusing on different elements of winter. So we're starting with around about 45 minutes of tragic fairy tales. Following that, we've got tragic climate that's guest hosted and curated by the wonderful Alice Bell. And then we're finishing up with an act of tragic death, which will feature Amy McAllister, Jack Rook and Izzy Lawrence. And then to finish up the night, at around about 10.30, we have a cathartic sing-along where everybody can shake off all of the sadness, can shake out all of the laughter and the tears that they've had for the whole of the night and come together through some singing. And if you want to stay later than 10.30, you're absolutely welcome to do so. We will go on into the early hours of the morning, busting out our tragic dance moves if the audience 
wills it to be so. So that's happening on the 28th of February. Tickets are £5 in advance, £7 on the door. Love to see you there. And now, with no further ado, let's get on with the meat and potatoes of the show. So, relax and prepare yourself for some tragedy. First up, we've got an interview with Robin Ince that was recorded at Edinburgh 2013, where he came along and performed an amazing set of tragedy for us. Some of our performers, understandably, because it's new material or it's material they're working on, don't let us share their performance on our podcast. So that was a special thing that we only got in the room. And it's a reminder of why you should come to our live shows as well as listening to our podcast, because there's some things that you're never going to get if you only listen to the podcasts. But here's Robin talking to the then producer of the podcast, Bryony, about his performance. And you can find more of what Robin does at www.robinince.com or he's at Robin Ince on Twitter. Hello, I'm Robin Ince and I do various things like kind of sciencey shows and stand-up. When Stand-Up Tragedy approached you with the idea of doing a slot for us tonight, what were your thoughts? Well, I like to do, I mean, especially this year in Edinburgh, I'm only up for like 40 hours. And so today I'm doing 11 different shows and each one has kind of different themes. And I like to have that thing, like when I got asked to do it, I thought I have no idea what I'm going to do. And then in the walk from doing uh, a poetry show with Phil Jupiter to getting here, I just let the things click into my head. And I thought, well, I'm going to talk about death. I'm going to talk about mortality. I thought, well, I'm quite lucky because I haven't experienced that much tragedy in my life. There's been a few things that have happened, but by the standards of certainly once you get beyond, you know, the kind of privileged world and you think of what many I haven't had to face up to too much hideous premature death and so I was just trying to think I thought well I wonder what's made me weep I wonder what kind of deaths have uh, affected me and then I started to think about doing the eulogy at my brother-in-law's funeral and things like that so I thought I'd talk about all those things well how did it feel to share all of those things well it's I don't know actually I think my the stuff in some ways is very personal even when I'm talking about the universe but what's weird is you have as a comedian uh, even if you're doing something serious you think I should be getting I should be getting laughs I'm not getting laughs I should, and then you go I'm not meant to be getting laughs uh, this isn't about laughs you know what I wanted to do was make something which had a certain lightness but at the same time was honest and you know I'll never do that stuff again you know that, that was, that's kind of you know some of those ideas might spring up again but in terms of that 10 minutes or however long I was talking for that just exists in that room with that group of 30 people did you have an intention of what you wanted them to take away from it? What would you take away if you saw a performer doing something like that? I think if I have any intent, in almost everything I do, which is to face up to the fact that uh, the fragility of life, the fragility of life on Earth, the fact that the Earth itself uh, is, you know, as far as we know, we've, we've certainly found nothing with even a hint as yet that there is another planet with such a vibrant selection of life. Though, of course, we have barely explored the universe and let us hope that there are many planets with such vibrant uh, selection of life. So it is, I think, part of it is just thinking right I've got this life I've got to try and do as much with it as possible and then talking about the idea of recyclable atoms and the fact that everything that makes us has made many many other things over the history of the universe to me that has a certain delight I know there are some scientists who go oh, beware you're getting into metaphysics but I don't think I am I think the idea is every single atom that makes you and me and everyone who is listening to this has made many things will make many things my personal belief is our consciousness we get one go and when I die on earth that's the end of me this personality this thing that is talking and boring you now but 
everything that's made me go off and make other things. So that's kind of the way you tend to get your tragic inspiration from. You look at the bigger picture. Well, I think so. And also the, the minor one. You know, I did also, of course, talk about my... Uh, I haven't talked about my epileptic dachshund before, Maximilian, who uh, sadly died of a stroke. You know, all of these things. I, I think there's so many... I've never... You know, death is something we fear all the time. And if, if you believe life is finite, sometimes you go, oh, this is ridiculous. I mean, it's like when you, I go, I'm halfway through. I might be more than halfway through. And I look at my bookshelves and I know I haven't got enough time to even finish those books. Why am I buying new books? But it does give tremendous impetus to try and do as much as possible. Again, hence why I'm doing 10, 11 shows today. And, you know, you spoke about your son. How would you like him to kind of cope with tragedy? Do you think it's healthy to share it? Yeah, I think, I think we need to make sure... You know, one thing I don't like is I do find that some people, that, you know, they cling on to tragedy. Tragedy and pain and, and the depression of their existence, it can be a defining thing. It's almost like, you know, if, if you're a true intellectual, you have to be very miserable. You have to, oh the, oh, the pain of existence. And really what we need to do is try and go, right, I can't spend too much time feeling the pain of existence because I've only got this number of days, you know. And when you look at it as a number of days, it can be a terrifying thing. So I hope that he's just, that he's open minded that but at the same time you know reasonably clear thinking i mean you know when he does one of the most frightening things for any parent is the two things one is you think at some point i am going to leave my child and that's it and the other side of it of course is the great terror i mean the moment you have a child i do find that yeah i think your whole brain becomes retuned. You suddenly find yourself going, I'm weeping, watching Holby City. I've, I don't even care about these characters, but there's some sad music came on, and now I have a child. And, and so it's interesting to see Probably that... Probably the lack of sleep. Oh. Yeah, and the lack of sleep, I think. But it's, it's also, you do just find yourself having a different view of the world because you have a life which you have to protect. Now, for scientific reasons, it might merely be because underneath it all, you're going, much of my code is within there. Nas, I must make sure that the vehicle continues beyond me but of course the delight is that nature doesn't make things that simple and that cold that is exactly what tragedy is all about we're about sharing and the cathartic experience learning from each other just yeah working our way through it yeah so next up we're going to have a performance by Siobhan Dodd that took place at our tragic heroes night at the Hackney Attic last year after that performance you're going to hear an extract from her episode of Getting Better Acquainted where we talk about what went into that performance and how that performance came about. Siobhan is the host of We Are Funny Variety which is a variety night, free entry variety night that happens regularly at Dirty Dicks which is near Liverpool Street Station. The next one's on the 25th of February at 7.30 where the theme is Funky Funky Disco. So... That's what Siobhan normally does. Here she is addressing a very different topic from what she would normally cover in her comedy routine. Put your hands together, everybody, for Siobhan Dodds! Thank you. Give it up for Dave Pickering! Well, uh, Hackney Attic... um, Normally, I would start by saying, it's great to be here! Uh, But given that all the performers have had to go through some sort of tragedy to qualify to perform, um, I guess I should say, it's shit to be here? (laughs) I don't know. No, really. Given that we can't do anything about the shite circumstances that lead us here, I say this with sincerity, stand-up tragedy, it's great to be here! So tonight, like Dave said, I'm going to be talking about something fairly personal and difficult, which I've never done on stage before. Ooh. Normally, 
normally, I, I do something totally different. Normally, my opening gambit is, do you know what really gets on my tits? Subliminal messages! <laughs> Which, um, oh shit, I've just remembered there's like an audio viewers as a podcast and I'm discriminating against the audio viewers at home. Uh, so I'll do some audio description. What I just did there, I just lifted up my top to reveal a sports bar and buy me a drink written on it. Yeah, it's highbrow comedy. <laughs> I then normally go on to say that I don't flash for drinks full time, but I'm actually a sign language interpreter. Or as some people like to call it, the woman in the corner who ruins a good episode of Hollyoaks! Bang! That's silly, isn't it? A good episode of Hollyoaks. <laughs> and then what I do is I get the whole audience to show me what they think is the sign for blowjob. And they normally do this. Audio viewers, what I just did was that thing with the, oh come on, you know, the one with the tongue and the cheek. You've done it at school. And as they do that, I then go, hey, madam, that's a valiant attempt, but sign language is based on visual accuracy, and I don't know about you, but when I suck cock, it doesn't enter through my cheek. No. <laughs> the sign for blowjob actually varies according to size. Or quantity. <laughs> but, uh, I just, oh, sorry, audio viewers, I just, like, acted out loads of different size cocks and then two in my mouth at once. But I'm not going to do that tonight, people. No, I'm not going to do any of it. None of it. None of this buy-me-a-drink stuff. No, no, no. Just flashed again. No, I'm stalling, aren't I? So I'm trying to avoid talking about the difficult stuff. Ugh. Tonight, I'm going to talk about uh, the worst day of my life. It was roughly ooh, 507 days and 10 hours ago, uh, on the um, 30th of October 2012. Forgive me, I struggle to say the date because it makes my blood curdle. Um, that morning when I woke up, my biggest concerns were that I had a cold coming on, I hadn't had time for a shower, and I had to interpret an all-day workshop on cupcake decorating. By the end of that day, I'd broken down on the fast lane of the motorway, I'd got repetitive strain injury from having to constantly do the sign language for pipe that icing, chocolate button, pipe that icing, chocolate button, and my father had died. Yeah, shit. <laughs> um, it was totally unexpected. Uh, they were on holiday in Cornwall, him and my mum. They'd uh, gone away for the weekend as part of their 60th birthday celebrations. And they were about to check out of the hotel, um, but they didn't. My dad didn't finish his holiday. In fact, he's still on holiday. We haven't unpacked his bag. He's still on holiday. And uh, the next day, Halloween 2012, me and my sisters and our partners, we drove up to Cornwall on what was the hardest, longest journey of my life. None of the service stations sold caramel hot chocolate! <laughs> Sorry, I just thought I'd better formulate me put a punchline in there to make it less awkward. Are you all okay? Can I check you're all okay? Lovely, I shall carry on. Um, yeah, obviously it was horrible. We were in a state of devastation and shock. Uh, but it's interesting because until that day, I had been one of the fortunate majority who had never experienced a significant bereavement. So I was one of these people who, when I met someone who had, I would go up to them and I would do the tilt, you know, the bereavement tilt. I swear last year I was like, what's wrong with everyone's necks? Everyone's looking at me like that. What the fuck? I would, I would do that, I'd do the bereavement tilt, then I'd give people a hug. But inside, I would be thinking, ah, what do I say? Anyone done that? Yeah, yeah of course you have. Because it's awkward, isn't it? You don't know what to say, you don't know what to do. And you get paralysed with this British illogical fear of saying the wrong thing. But then when it happens to you, you realise that every text, every card, every Facebook message provides such comfort. So actually, it's impossible to say the wrong thing. Well, almost impossible. <laughs> Would you like to hear what my favourite condolence message was? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I got a text from my friend. 
I love you, V, 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 V much. Rem that, babe. My every thoughts and prayers are with you and your family at this difficult time. Please keep 1st of December free. Girly gathering at my house. Theme is heart. Wear summer with a heart in. Lot of cuddles and kisses, smiley face. Kiss, 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 kiss. <laughs> oh, bless her. I love that friend. I do love that friend. And actually, don't let that stop you from sending condolence texts. Because still, it's better to get an inappropriate message than to say nothing at all. In fact, that's even better than saying anything comforting. Because I showed it to my family, we all took the piss, and that provided a welcome distraction from the pain. So I, I thought that I'd won the trophy of best condolence message, but then my sister got a sympathy card from work, and when she opened it up, out popped this little pink bit of paper that said, Janet's made it to 65! Come to Janet's birthday bash! <laughs> and I showed it to my family, and we all read it, and we were like, uh, oh, we all read it as, Janet's made it to 65! That's five years on your dad! Some people can make it to 65, but not your dad, not your hero that links that tragic hero, not your hero, not the person you love so much and still essentially need in your life because you're just a little girl who still needs her daddy. But no, don't worry, Janet's made it to 65. P.S. The cause of death was hereditary, so you're also very unlikely to make it to 65, but don't worry, because Janet's made it to 65! <laughs> but really, it's impossible to say the wrong thing. Yeah, it's possible. Hey, you know, do you all know the seven stages of grief? Yeah, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to but there is, there's the seven stages of grief, and one of them's anger, and I haven't gone through that yet, until just then, yay, great, I, I normally prefer denial, one of them's denial, that's my favourite, I love denial, it's, it's brilliant, acceptance is what you're meant to get to, but fuck that, I ain't accepting that, oh, so Janet's made it to 65, good for Janet, good for Janet, but it's interesting, there's another response that society has to bereavement, and that's when they don't give you any sympathy at all, but instead they decide to play a little game of pain top trumps. So you say, like, oh, uh, I lost my father recently. And they go, well, I lost both my parents in a fire when I was 16. <laughs> like, okay, okay, right, yeah, shit. I wasn't aware it was a competition, but you do win. Um, thank you for invalidating my pain. <laughs> Because the thing is, I don't, don't get me wrong, don't, don't think that I'm just a spoiled little girl moaning. I am fully aware how lucky I am. I'm very fortunate. I'm a middle-class girl from Surrey. I had 28 years of the best dad in the world. I'm lucky. There's people who are worse off than me, scores of them. But am I not right in thinking we're all allowed to feel pain regardless of our situation? Am I right? Yeah. yeah. Lovely, lovely. There's another thing people do in response to bereavement. And that's whenever you bring it up, which obviously last year I was bringing it up a lot because, hey, it was kind of on my mind. And you bring, you bring it up and someone says, they do the tilt, have you thought about counselling? Which of course when they say that what they mean is, uh, have you thought about counselling? Because I don't want you to talk to me about it. <laughs> and uh, counselling is for people who don't talk and, um, hey, I talk. So that's a flaw. Also, my sister had a go at bereavement counselling, and she said that talking to a bereavement counsellor was excruciating as talking to a quiet person at a party. Oh. So, no, I, I don't need counselling. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine. Buy me a drink. I'm fine. Really, I, I think it's much healthier just to, to talk into a mic in front of a room full of people and have it recorded for podcasts. That's so healthy. It's free therapy. In fact, it's better than free therapy because you've all paid to get in, so... <laughs> It's therapy funded by the public. Yay! My emotional well-being is like the Royal Bank of Scotland. Yeah! Fantastic. But I'm going to leave you by talking
talking about the funeral. So uh, I sang at the funeral, and when I, when I turned up, I got into the church, and I, I got ready to sing. I stood on the pulpit, and I said, normally I'd start by saying, it's great to be here. I didn't, I didn't, do that. I didn't, I didn't really do that. I was formulaically, I thought I'd put another punchline in. But I, uh, one of the songs that we sang at the funeral has provided me with so much comfort. It, it, it's an amazing song, and it came to us as a sign because it fell out of a magazine as uh, we were planning the funeral. And there's one of these lyrics, one of the lyrics from the song that has just given me so much strength. It won't be long before another day. We're going to have a good time. No one's going to take that time away. You can stay as long as you like. And that, that is the key, because what that says is that it doesn't matter what tragedies happen in the future, all the happiness, all the joy, all those memories, they're in the bank, they're safe. No one's going to take that time away. And that, that, I mean, that just, that's carried me through. Um, so I would like to finish on that song, if that's okay. It's a bit of a low note, but I would like to, yeah, I'd like to finish with that song. Is that all right with you, stand-up tragedy? You've been absolutely lovely. Let me talk to you like this. So I'll sing this for you now. <clears throat> Well, the sun is slowly sinking down And the moon is slowly rising And this old world will still be spinning round And I still love you So close your eyes You can close your eyes, it's alright And I don't know no love song I can sing the blues anymore, but I can sing this song, and you can sing this song when I'm gone. It won't be long before another day. We're gonna have a good time, and no one's gonna take that time away. You can stay as long as you like. So close your eyes. You can close your eyes. It's alright. And I don't know no love songs. And I can sing the blues anymore. But I can sing this song. And you can sing this song when I. Catherine Levy, everybody. Thank you very much. Love you, Trim. Yeah, the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Uh, well, how do I know Dave Pickering? We met at Kunf. See you next mm. Thursday. Charlie Harrison's gig in Soho. In Soho on the... I remember the date because I'm weird. Uh, I It was... What was it? 6th of September 2013. Okay. Something like that. I mean, I, I don't remember. It's brilliant. I remember I remember dates. I'm really strange. We did the gig in the Royal George. It was fantastic. I had a good gig. I was really happy with it. And then afterwards, Charlie said, let's all go out drinking. Right, that's right. And me and you followed the crowd. Tried to go out drinking with the, with the in crowd. With the in crowd, but we got lost. Right, this is true. <laughs> and we ended up in a drag bar. Right. And I was determined that we drink whiskey. That's right. So we drank whiskey, which an, cost us about £12. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. But I really, I really liked it. Yeah, I mean, that was the funny thing. It was what the reason we missed where we were going to yeah. is because we got into a big conversation. Yes, um, we had. and because yes. we'd got into that big conversation, yeah. you know, we weren't paying proper we attention. Paying attention, and then yeah. Know, yeah, then we were cut off and we, we, we tried a, a few different alternatives, like yes. really walking around sort of Soho yeah. uh, with our phones, trying to find yeah, the, the place they were going be. to and then gave up then gave and up. had a conversation yes. and just enjoyed that. And, and a it whiskey. was a good one. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah. And very kind of you to buy that whiskey. I think well, you I think. Did you not buy no, the whiskey? You did the whiskey. I buy the whiskey? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. You did. Oh, wow. That is really generous. I was about to thank you for buying it. No, no, no. So it wasn't me. I don't remember buying it. I think it was a double, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it, it was. was yeah. It was a drag bar. And it was, it was good whiskey as well. It was very good whiskey. I mean, it was bloody expensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It didn't you justify can't... its. Uh, <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't. But the drag show was just great. Mm. And the fact that we were just having a normal conversation um, right. with drag show going on like, was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And the funny thing about that, that meeting, I guess, is mm. what we were talking about is I do a show called Stand Up Tragedy yeah. and you're a comedian. I'd seen you do your comedy and yeah. I'd, I'd enjoyed it and I was talking to you about um, if, if you'd be interested in doing my night and talking yeah. about what my night was about mm. and you sort of realised you had something that you did want to share yeah. at Stand Up yeah. Tragedy but at the same time you'd not sort of thought about sharing it as yeah. much until that minute so it was kind yeah. of a complicated moment I guess for you yes it was I mean that 2013 was still very much a fuzzy year for me because I lost my dad end of October 2012 right. um, and I hadn't really I hadn't really got into comedy that much by that point I'd started it January 2012 and I was doing it my aim was to start it as a hobby and do it once a fortnight obviously I did it more than that but by October by the time I lost him um, I'd done about 32 gigs wow um, so and then I stopped for two months, took two months out. Then 2013, January, I came back into it and I got really into it. I don't know if I was kind of trying to distract myself or, or whatever, but I, I got I got really into it and I did, was doing about two or three shows a week, which is nothing compared to other comedians. I know there's many that do it five times a week, but for me, that's fine. Right, I, I need and you've got a day to, job too. Yeah, and I need time to scratch my ass and, you know, be a human being. <laughs> right, to come up with this, jokes. It's quite yeah, jokes. handy to have time to think. Oh, yeah. Well, so I was... Um, fairly going at it fairly hard 2013 mm. and then when I met you I was sort of it was a great gig and I was in a, an okay place but it was coming up to the one year mark so I was still a bit funky right. everything was still a bit blurry and fuzzy yeah um because it was also sudden it totally you know destroyed us really as a family we're not just sorry it didn't destroy us but it fucked us up basically. right am I allowed to swear yeah yeah oh, you are. love swearing <laughs> so yeah when I met you I sort of I thought about it but the idea of doing it made me feel weird um, and I'll be honest, it still made me feel weird even mm. when I did it. Yeah, and actually it doing hard, it was weird. Right, it was a hard night for you, it I was, think, uh, yeah. personally. And it was complicated as well. Um, mm. I think because your, your, well, then fiancé, yeah. but now, now, now husband. Yes, uh, yes. Was, two weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, he was sort of desperately <laughs> trying to get there to see your, see you do the, do your yes. piece. and. And understandable, well, yeah, yeah but under- right, exactly. And understandably, you had a lot invested in in yes. what you were going to talk about because yeah. you sort of made this. You you were trying to make a piece that sort of bridged mm. comedy and and talking about this serious subject of yeah. your father passing away and its re- yeah. relationship to you. And then there yeah. was also a song element to it, yeah, which I really was. enjoyed. I mean, I thought it was a really oh. good 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 idea um, for, for how to communicate what you were wanting to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it was tricky for you, though, wasn't it? Was it was hard, yeah, it was. I felt weird about it. I did feel weird about it. Yeah, because as a comedian, yeah. you, you, you're you looking for the laugh as well. So mm. that's a hard thing to come into. Like, mm. comedians often, even when they're not doing as as um, as raw a topic, yeah. 
um, can uh, can be a bit surprised by the way that a stand-up tragedy room feels. I mm. think after you've done it the first time, I feel like a comedian yeah. doesn't expect the laughs in the same places. I mean, yeah. not to say that sometimes comedy mm. sets don't get a laugh a minute at stand-up yeah. tragedy. They do because sometimes mm. people do straight up comedy, comedy. sets. Yeah, but yeah. people like they're a bit slower mm. waiting for the cues because mm. they because they like. Shall I settle into the rhythm of this comedy yes. set, or is it yeah. going to suddenly hurt me? Yeah, 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 <laughs> and yeah. so they're a bit cautious, which is mm. not not, me- not meaning they're not enjoying what's going yeah. on, which is interesting. But from your side, you were sort of talking publicly about something that yes. you hadn't talked about, I guess. Yeah. I mean, uh, why did you decide to do that? Um, because you asked me. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I <laughs> do that of. kind of thing too. I'm not saying yeah. you're weird for it, but I mean, you know... <sighs> Yeah. Yeah. You asked me, and I thought it might be. I I, I remember you, you. It was in January, I think, or yeah. was it October, I think November? It, yeah, I can't remember when. You approached me with dates. Right. That's right. And I said, I'm a bit. Fu- I'm still fucked up now. That was probably November time, I think. Yeah. November, actually, no, November. I did a big memorial concert for my dad with my family, so right. that was one hurdle that we had to that we had to get past, and it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing, and that was one kind of celebration and one kind of grief milestone as it were and that was all your family um, together then yeah yeah because we're a musical family uh-huh. uh, my dad was a guitarist um i was a singer we me and him were, were playing pubs from the age of 14 right um not, well, i was 14 not him yeah. that would be weird <laughs> i wouldn't have been around um right. i think he was playing in pubs at 14 but somewhere in somerset and i wouldn't have obviously been there right um, so he was musical yeah yeah, yeah a brilliant guitarist right. and um, i mean never never professionally we never did it professionally we just did it we just did it around pubs uh, weddings we used to run an open mic night uh, called Busk Factor in South London in Putney. And then we did that once a month. And that's kind of what got me into comedy because I would enjoy, I would MC. Right. Um, and I would give out party bags to all the performers and I would give out crayons and Play Doh and paper to all the audience because I'm, I'm quite eccentric and I like spreading eccentric joy, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So we'd do that. And that was like an event we ran. Uh, which is funny because I know we're on the variety show and that's very busk factor elements of that that really right. feeds into that. You give, you give me those dates and there were different themes. It was January, February, March. And March was heroes. Mm. And I said, heroes? Well, your father's like a hero. Yeah, that's so right. So I said, right, March. And also I thought, I figured I'd be less fucked up by March. Right. So that could be a bit of time to just be a bit less fucked up. Predicting when you're going to be less fucked up is really, really hard. (laughs) I've definitely done that in my life and I've never been very good at working it out. Yeah, but actually, (laughs) no, I was still quite fucked up, but I did it. You did? Yeah, and and I'm glad I did it. It did feel weird. I'm not going to say it was, yes, massively relieving, because I don't know if it was, actually. No, I don't think it always is. I've definitely done stories on stage that have been about hard things to talk about that I haven't necessarily finished and gone, oh, I've had catharsis. No, Um, no. I mean, actually, when when I did Tragic Christmas, Mm. uh, the stories I was telling then and the other stories mm. as well the whole experience of going through all of the darkest stuff about Christmas yeah. that I've experienced mm. sent me into a, like a real spin of depression I think right. like for, wow. for a couple of months but yeah. I think that when I came out of that mm. th- I benefited from that mm. experience even if in the moment it wasn't cathartic at all yeah in the yeah, long yeah, yeah. term it was but I don't even mm. think that's true for everything it may no. have just been insignificant in your grieving process I don't know um, I don't knows? know I don't know I mean I don't know if it's just time anyway I mean I, I do feel like a more balanced individual now right um I mean you've just that's... got you've just got married yeah um so you've, yes. you've had sort of very positive narrative of the last year I guess yeah. which is nice yeah. to, to sort of replace a, a 
a, a, a period mm. of time when the narrative was the other kind of yeah, uh, yeah. celebration, which is important. Yeah, but, absolutely. But different. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, it's more, and I, I thought I was going to have a come down after the wedding. Right. And I haven't had that yet. Uh, I'm, I'm waiting for it, especially because obviously I got engaged within the throes of grief, like 2013, right. when everything was still fuzzy. And it was, and, but then this kind of the wedding came as a nice focus, something I could put my attention to that was positive, something for the whole family to focus on that was right. positive. And I did think, oh, when that's gone, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really difficult. I'm going to experience a slump. Also, my mum's going to be moving house as well, so that's that's difficult. But actually, it's okay. I feel okay. Good. I'm yes. really pleased. Yeah, I don't. It's always I, nice when people are having a good time and well, are I in think a good so. place. Yes. I like it. <laughs> I mean, it could, you know, you never know. You can't, like you say, you can't predict when you're going to be fucked up. Yeah. Or, or how. Yeah. <laughs> or when it's going to come back. But I, I, I feel okay. I think, I think that's just time, isn't it? You just, you get balanced. You sort stuff out and you, you learn to, you learn to live with stuff. Yeah. Well, definitely. Mm. I mean, and it's, I mean, and, and these are like, and grief is something that's going to happen to everybody. And yeah. death is something yeah. that we're always going to have to deal with at certain yeah. points. I've also realised, and I think doing the stand-up tragedy made, made me realise this, and this is what's kind of quite hard and callous about it, is you did it and you kind of expect to be, like, embraced afterwards, you know, how, right. you, how, like, how you get in, in grief. And no one's going to embrace you. you you're on, the, it, it's kind of cold, you're just doing it. it right. And it's quite a big room as well. Yeah, so you yeah, actually yeah, can't was. see everyone's reactions. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wonder, stand-up tragedy is probably very different when you do it in an intimate space. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, definitely. But I remember sort of feeling strange afterwards, feeling like, oh, not everyone's coming up to me and hugging me, which was wrong for me to expect that. Right. What, why should they? Right, right. And but, actually, but loads of people have gone through stuff. You were kind of you know? conditioned to, to feel that, though, anyway, to a certain extent, right? Yeah, because that's what yeah. happens to you, like, quite regularly. Like, a lot of your, like, a lot of the... The actual mm. piece you did at Stand Up Tragedy was kind of about that that mm. awkwardness of how do people talk to you yeah, once you yeah, yeah. experience grief and, and mm. like you know it was very you know funny on those on those yeah. lines. Yeah, see, and I feel like, kind of another reason I felt weird about it was I felt guilty making comedy about it. Right, I did because I mean, it's, it's like why this is something it? that's really heart wrenching. How can I be making light of this? And I and I haven't really gone near it again. I, I've I've maybe referenced it once when I've been emceeing, and it's right. just come out as an ad lib yeah, yeah. with a room that's you know my audience. I've been with them all night, mm. and then I'm comfortable with it. But I haven't I haven't broached it otherwise. And and I I, I might I yeah. might you know sure yeah I might still, but it has to be done sensitively. I think. Yeah yeah yeah. Because I don't want the, if the audience take it and use it the wrong way, then that's going to well, be a bit violating. The, right, that's yeah. always the fear when doing stuff about your life. I yeah. mean, and and I guess that's why. Yeah, I mean, that's I try try I try to create safe spaces for that sort mm. of thing to happen, yeah. but but they. they they definitely aren't a mainstream Mm. comedy night no Uh, like an open mic night uh would not be necessarily the place that I would ever choose to to go near near that stuff I mean it's yeah I mean and I mean I guess comedians have this complicated thing of of it's you know Mm. one of the things that you guys do is is draw on your life yes Uh, yes and and I'm in the same position as a true Mm. storyteller I draw on my life all the time and then it's like how much is how much is how, how true am I being? Yeah, about, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Am I creating a false kind of idea of my of yeah, who I am? Yeah. In that conversation, you will have heard mention of our tragic Christmas show. So I thought it would be a really appropriate thing to do to go into a little bit of the material that I did at Tragic Christmas to give you a little bit of the flavour of what my hosting was like that night and the kind of things that I was bringing up on stage. I've only included a tiniest bit of it. If you want to hear the whole show 
I recommend it. It's all available on the podcast feed. Tragic Christmas Acts 1, 2 and 3. We also released a selected tragedy over the Christmas period this year, which had the creme de la creme of that Christmas gig. So what we're going to hear now is me doing a little bit of my hosting, followed by Richard Tyrone Jones performing a very personal piece at that tragic Christmas gig. Probably the saddest and most tragic of the performances that happened that night. Certainly the most personally open and personally exposing it's a, an amazing performance so i'm not ashamed to have put it in so many of our podcasts if you've heard it before i'm sure you won't mind hearing it again after that we're going to have uh, an extract from an episode of getting better acquainted that richard did with me where we talk about that performance you can find more about what richard is up to at www.rtjpoet.com and you can follow him on Twitter at rtjpoet. He has recently given up being a poet, but he hasn't given up creating things and making things, I'm sure. So keep an eye out on what he's doing. Whatever he ends up doing is going to be interesting and worth your time. So Keep an eye out for Richard Tyrone Jones in the future. I said I was going to go through a few more of my my Christmas memories. Most Christmases were traumatic. Most of that trauma I can't talk about here because it's not mine. Um, But uh, there was lots of trauma going on all around me. Uh, And I I think, like, I remember this this kind of moment when I'd left home and I came back for my... For, for kind of near to Christmas. In fact, it might have been Christmas, my first Christmas back. I never went back home again after that. Uh, that I just remember the family Christmas dinner had ended in screaming rows and people storming out and sadness. And uh, I sort of sat incredibly drunk, like, after that, watching Titanic. <laughs> just, just thinking, is this Christmas? Is this Christmas? And then after that, sort of staying up into the night to, to wait to see if my to see if the people who'd left was, were going to come back. Uh, and uh, it was sort of like nearly nearly midnight, and uh, I turned on the TV, and uh, children were dying in Bethlehem. And that's like one of my really I really remember that, and I'm sure that's going to happen this Christmas. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it happens most Christmases. But it kind of, uh, for me, this is, see, the thing is, everybody else, like, I don't know, everyone seems to love Christmas, but I just find it very triggering. Uh, <laughs> I do. Anyway, uh, so, uh, and it's not just Christmas I find triggering as well. Like, uh, the, the, the last thing on my thing before I introduce the next act is to tell you about the time when my, uh, my um, basically, it was, Chris, it was New Year, and uh, my, I brought my, my girlfriend uh, to home, uh, to, to, to Cardiff, where I, where I used to live, and m- me and some friends and her walked out to Castle Koch, Castel uh, Koch, I should say, the Red Castle, which is outside of Cardiff. And uh, we walked for ages in the dark. It was really annoying. Some people fell out. It was like one of those things where it's like, why have we decided to do this? We walked out all the way there. We finally got there for New Year. Just at that point, there was a blazing argument between some people who were in a relationship. And they all ran off into the, into the woods. And I didn't know who was coming back. And at that point, I got a phone call from my mum telling me about my sister was trying to 
had tried to kill herself. And uh, uh, that was New Year that year. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, but the thing that always stands out to me about this is my, my girlfriend, uh, who is in the room, but I'm not going to draw attention to her because she hates that. Uh, she's quite a kind of quiet, introverted person, very kind and pleasant. And we'd only sort of been going out for a little while. But when my mum rang me up and told me that I had to be at home, even though there was absolutely no way for me to travel, to, like teleportation had not, has not yet been invented, I'm waiting. Um, and my mum was screaming at me down the phone. Jen took the phone off me, uh, this crying, uh, quivering whack, and basically told my mum to fuck off. Uh, and she doesn't really do that. And it really set her well for the next 13 years of our relationship, because my mum, she doesn't mess with Jen now. <laughs> so that is kind of a happy Christmas memory, I guess. So put your hands together for Richard Tyrone Jones! possible I might need this. It's November 2012. My mum has early onset dementia. My dad, a 62-year-old workaholic with Asperger's who for the last 10 years has literally read nothing but the Daily Mail, has reacted to this unconstructively <laughs> with a descent into screaming madness. We have had the altercation that we should have had when I was a teenager. But after that, he behaved himself almost impeccably for my sister's wedding. It looked as if the medications were working. But a week or so afterwards, at home, he, he started doing the pacing again, chanting like a, a cult member a stuck novelty record. They're going to put me away! They're going to put me in jail! Referring to his paranoia about an insignificant benefits fraud. And worse, you shouldn't be here! You shouldn't be here! At first, I thought that he meant that I should have left home by now. Which I had done. <laughs> or that I shouldn't be there to see him in this state, but soon realised, no, he meant that we, his three children, should never have been born. It had always been my mum who wanted kids, and that explained why Dad had never really paid attention to us. Madness of any kind strips back the layers of propriety. The Russian doll that is the personality to the embryo inside of the raw psyche. My mum's dementia was revealing her essential self to be pleasant, uncomplaining, loving and concerned. Dad's to be one of paranoia and obsessive self-reproach. I was back home between shows in November when he woke me up early in the morning by banging around shouting desperately, Where's the notes? Where's the notes? I was half asleep but roused myself quickly in case this was something bad. It was downstairs in his pyjamas and old football manager coat. He'd given up finding the notes and made his way to the back garden, got a garden chair out, then went back into the garage and returned with plastic bags which he was desperately trying to stuff down his throat. I pulled them out as fast as he could. Then I had to stay outside to get mobile reception while I called an ambulance. 
that he came back out with a Stanley knife. I had to disarm him of that before he could cut his own throat in front of me. Then, when he tried to get up again, punch him in the guts and threaten him with a beating to stop him from killing itself. Strange logic. But this time, I actually had no stomach for violence, but I couldn't think of any other way. I had to wait for the police to arrive before the ambulance could respond because there was an alert on the house from the last time he'd done this. And hey presto, when the police arrived, Dad was suddenly reasonably reasonable again. And they persuaded him to go back to the ward. Later, I'd realised that I couldn't remember if I'd patted my dad on the shoulder as he went into the ambulance or, or hugged him after I'd punched and restrained him. I didn't realise then that in what manner I'd touched him would become important. Exhausted and angry, I phoned my granddad, then 90, to come and look after mum and decided that, yeah, I would catch the train I'd booked to the hotel I'd booked in Manchester and would shag the nice 22-year-old girl I'd met up there while touring my show. Should I have gone in the ambulance with my dad, like the police wanted? I still don't think it would have made any difference. Life is a constant series of decisions between spending your life ameliorating present misery or chasing the chance of future happiness, no matter how slim the chance is. And she was a real goer. (laughs) My dad was in and out of hospital. Under and out from section, I forget how many times... But he could still act normal enough that he was able to duck out through the mental ward security doors behind a visitor, get on a bus to Dudley Town Centre, drink a pint of Guinness in Weatherspoons, ever the scrimper, then return with a knife and try to cut his throat again. Apparently this time he got a formidable scar. The mental hospital was right next to the A&E, so I could tell myself that this was another cry for help. The fourth. I talked to him on the phone and and told him he didn't have to worry about money or anything. We'd take care of mum to remove the pressure from him. That we loved him. He was even more unresponsive than before. But I thought, due to our fractious history, it might be best if I stayed away. He'd never taken any advice from anyone while he was well, except for from the Daily Mail. So if he did recover, it wouldn't be thanks to me. If he didn't... Well, I didn't want to remember him as being in a hospital. A huge scar on his neck. I didn't want madness, sadness, to run my life, so I went to Sardinia as I'd planned to flee the darkness of winter. I didn't learn much Italian... Just ended up wandering about alone in the off-season. But listening to every single Adam and Joe podcast ever recorded did take my mind off things. On 9th of December, my sister sent me an encouraging picture of the folks decorating the tree. On Monday, the 17th of December, I'd been drinking exclusively, excusably heavily in the youth hostel bar in Cagliari. 
watching from the sidelines as some locals did traditional singing and dancing with no news being good news, I'd already decided to come back for Christmas, booked my flight for the next day. Then I checked emails. My sister wanted me to phone her. I typed, oh, he's not gone back into the hospital again, has he? You better email me what's happened. She did. It felt like the bottom had fallen out of the world. I thought I was going to be sick. But I didn't. He'd been on weekend release from the hospital due to go back that morning. The section had run out, so he didn't have to, but I'll never know if he knew that. He visited my sister on Sunday and recklessly put his hand in a drain filled with drain and blocker without gloves, but at least he'd wanted to help. He'd quietly watched BBC Sports Personality of the Year with my mum before going to bed. That Monday morning, nurses were supposed to have come round to assess mum's care needs. My sister came round early to meet them and instead found him hanging in the hallway. I imagined him again, again, because I wasn't there. So let's portray him in detail and exhibit so I can finally cut him down. The plastic curtain cord speaks of improvisation but not snapping. He must have risen early, not manic, planned it. His silk effects pyjamas clean, a small miracle. The 35-year-old banisters held him as he crouched in an impossible position, facing the wall as if weeping, his face grey as his hair, yet peaceful. There would have been kicking, but not enough to wake anyone. I do wonder if he thought about who'd find him dangling like a Christmas decoration, a memory to be brought out every year, every year. My sister had to find the neighbour, go upstairs, wake my mum and make sure she got downstairs to the neighbours without once looking back at him like... Lot's wife in reverse. Thankfully, she managed it. The ambulance service actually asked her to cut him down with a pair of scissors, which seems a little insensitive. And given the metal within a plastic cord thing, also ignorant of material sciences. Like I say... It should have been the worst Christmas ever. But it wasn't. Because, if nothing else, Christmas that year was certainly purposeful. My Austrian sister returned and we fell upon administrative tasks with Teutonic gusto. Strange relief from thinking about what had happened. Our Christmas list that year was Spartan. Coroner's report, death certificate, funeral date. But the most important task was to cheer mum up and take her mind off it. In that, 
Well, the dementia helped. But so did Christmas. On Christmas Day, we, me, my Austrian sister, mum, brother-in-law, granddad and me went round to my non-Austrian sisters who cooked the best Christmas meal ever. Roast turkey, Yorkies, cheesy leeks and red cabbage, roasted onion, sweet potato mash and asparagus, neeps and tatties, pigs in a blanket. My sister went a bit crazy. The crackers, hats and fine wines from the cellar. We were determined that this wouldn't defeat us. We sat in the front room, my sister's daft cocker spaniels on my mum's lap. One dressed as a reindeer, the other as Carmen Miranda. Traditional Christmas, you know. (laughs) Of course she cried. My mum's always been lachrymose, but they were good tears. Tears of relief that madness had not spoiled Christmas. The spaniels didn't quite lick them off her cheek, but they could have done. It was almost that Dickensian. That we were there to hold her and tell her to imagine Dad had gone to live in Cyprus, where everyone reads nothing but the Daily Mail, (laughs) like he dreamed of doing when he was alive. I wish my dad could have been there, but then... I'd spent my whole life wishing he'd been there, emotionally. He hadn't been destroyed by his hip replacements, his retirement, his lack of education, or mum's illness. In the end, he'd been destroyed by his lack of empathy, of love. For us, for himself, for life. I often worry, every winter in fact, that I've inherited that but last Christmas the love of my family was all that I could ask for and looking round I knew that now every member of my family was finally able to give it okay my apologies to Beckhill (laughs) who is a comedian (laughs) and has to come on next and make you laugh after that. But luckily, uh, we've got Dave first. Thank you very much. Can we really address our root causes? I suspect not. I think you just wait until you get old enough to forget about them. Because... Just other, if, some, if you had a really deeply traumatic childhood experience, you're going to have some more. <laughs> they, they, there's right. Everyone you know is going to die. Or if you don't die first, people that you love are going to die around you. You know, your wife might miscarry. Um, there might be a horrible fucking disaster. You might lose an arm or a leg. Um, and then in, when those things happen, that will put it. That puts it in perspective. No, but isn't that the brilliant thing or mm. terrible thing or ridiculous thing about humans, though? Though that does put it in perspective in that mm. moment, mm. right? Mm. You can have a terrible traumatic event, and you've had more than yeah. me, but I've had a few. Mm. Um, you can have those traumatic events, mm. 
and then you can still be annoyed by something completely trivial two weeks later like to, to a ridiculous yeah. level like that is almost approaching the, yeah. the, 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 the kind of way that you were in the, uh, the traumatic yeah, event but that shows that how much you bounce back from <laughs> yeah, yeah, that losing shows how relief, doesn't it yeah resilient, I'm really fucking annoyed by the fact that this the post train. office isn't right, open right, and right. it's supposed to be open right still <laughs> I've forgotten about my AIDS right so, yeah, right um, right, the resilience uh, of the human spirit yeah. is that we can still always find frustration in trivial things, regardless of how many traumas That's we've had. That's the beauty <laughs> of humanity, isn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, which I guess kind of potentially brings us around to sort of another event that has definitely happened to you since we haven't talked about on, on my Yeah, it's definitely happened. Um, I mean, we can set this up, if you like, with your performance from Stand Up Tragedy, if, you, like, if that would be a good way of setting it up. It was just before Christmas, which, yeah. which is why it was relevant to that show. Yeah. And as I said to you off mic earlier on, so I'm not, I'm not doing it to curry your favour, yeah. like, I was very impressed by the, mm. you changing a, a recent mm. traumatic experience into mm. something so clear and, uh, like, warm and true and occasionally funny but very very profound like yeah. everything that poetry should be i think mm. um it wasn't actually poetry it was a yeah. it was a story but uh, yeah, it did everything a, a great poetry poetry should do yeah there was i've only written two poems about it which was one that was part of that and um yeah that's right another one about um you know the aftermath and getting getting rid of his clothes which is for me was more more important than um, scattering the ashes. Um, no, get clothes say more about a person than than ashes do. Do you know? Yeah, <laughs> and, right. And uh, taking them off to a, a town that was far away enough um, that uh, you know, you, the, the, the clothes wouldn't turn up you again. See them on <laughs> charity shops because me and my sister love shopping in charity shops. Right. And. But, we, but my friend Joe um, came from, who I knew from university, he um, lives in London. He actually drove all the way out to London to, to see me and to, and to take these clothes yeah. to a charity shop in Bridge North, which is a picturesque village on a bend in uh, the River Severn, I think it is. Um, in, um, I can never remember if it's Shropshire or Staffordshire, but in, in a way that was like, finding a nice place to leave his ashes to rest and you know I just talked about it to Joe and unburdened myself and then after that you know the rest is the the, the rest is admin you yeah. it's you know I've been I, I, I didn't kind of because I was dealing with all my dad's labyrinthine financial affairs shares and um, bank accounts and in and life well he didn't have any life insurance but um, a pension pensions that he never claimed uh, stuff he, and, and in doing his tax return even though he was already dead it was like he wasn't right. dead yet and seeing all these little aspects of his life and what shares he bought and where he well this is the reality yeah. of death and you know, within the, the system that we're in, I mean, yeah. my, I mentioned to you off, my, my, my grand passed away in December and it, mm. you know, it struck me then as well, that, you know, then my, my, my mum and my, my aunt were suddenly dealing with the admin 
of, of, of managing that, that situation. It's going to be different admin, different people. They're going to yeah. be, you know, some of the admins going to be, you know, uh, more labyrinthine, if you like, than others. Yeah. But, but, but the first thing that people are thrown into after that initial shock is, you know, lawyers, right. economic issues. Yeah. And that, that's a strange fit with our, our, our feelings about our, our, our deceased, I think. Yeah. It's not really what you're thinking about at that time, naturally, but you have to do yeah. it, right? I mean, at least he, he, he didn't make a will for all of his life because for all that he was really stingy with money, and really, um, yeah, avaricious. I mean, he had us to, to look after. He had three kids. He he wasn't. He was no good at planning. We we ended up doing his tax returns for him as my mum got more ill. Me and my sister would kind of, I'd do it one year and she'd do it another year. And the, the will that he made just left everything to my mum, who got dementia, which is completely ridiculous. Yeah. yeah it's. Um, and I thought, oh, it's a good, good thing that he's actually made a will. He's facing up to the problems that my mum has. Because for a long time he'd just say, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. Just literally buried his head in the sand. And it, it is an incredibly bad thing to deal with. I mean, you know, your wife... He did one moment when he was almost approaching lucidity. He just said, you know, what's happened to your mum? It's broken my heart, and you know maybe I wasn't sympathetic enough then. I don't think any of this would have made any difference. You couldn't do anything, Richard. I think he was—he was always going to do it. You can't—you can't change the past yeah. anyway. But like often in these situations, there's nothing one can do. Yeah. But I just wish, like for me, that I'd given him a hug, whether yeah. he wanted one or right, not. Right for you, right? Oh, I, know. Yeah. I get that. I get that. I'm, and I'm and I'm I'm sorry that you can't, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, that it's was one of those spaces where you can't do any like you know. Yeah. There's nothing I can say here. Yeah. There's no. There is. <laughs> no. <laughs> but thanks for. <laughs> yeah. And now we're gonna go from the very sad topics that we were talking about and try and sort of like have a a change of tone just to end the show, so we're not left in such a dark place. And we're gonna have a piece of music from the reactionaries which is a an alternative pop duo that i'm a part of this is from an album that we released last year called bouncy poppy songs about death it's the album that the end theme for stand-up tragedy comes from this is the first song on the album it's called the grouse it's about a stuffed grouse that's dead that may not sound like it's going to change the tone but I think it kind of will buy or download it for free it's available online bouncy poppy songs about death by the reactionaries on Bandcamp here's a recorded version of that song I was a grouse running in the highlands I didn't see the hunter coming I didn't see the hunter coming now
so that's the end of this week's look at the process, the background, the reasons why some of our performers have done tragedy on our stage. Any episode of Stand Up Tragedy isn't really fully representative of what happens at a Stand Up Tragedy show. The only way to get the full feel is to come to a live one. And the next one, as I said at the beginning of the episode, is on Saturday the 28th of February. Tragic winter at the Hackney Attic. £5 in advance, £7 on the door. There'll be people making comedy about death. There'll be people doing spoken word about true experiences. There'll also be songs fictional stories, discussion of climate change and all sorts of different things mixed together with some laughs, with some tears, with some thoughts, with some feelings. So come along on the 28th and for now the tragedy is over. This podcast has been produced by me and put together by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with some interviews and some extra production from Bryony Hawkins with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionaries. It's time to go. go.